welcome to The Signal. I'm Marianne McClarty. And I'm Joe Thompson from the Audio Workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. Thanks for joining us. Coming up on the show... Nova Scotia's opposition wants to stop time. Changes. But an expert disagrees. You have tired drivers already dealing with darkness and slippery conditions, and it's just a recipe for disaster. Creating community in destructive times. That's been so beautiful, right? That connection that happened through dance. How a dance instructor found some good in the pandemic. And... Average salaries coming out of our program, you know, dollars $90,000. Learn how a Canadian company is creating opportunities for veterans and their families. This is The Signal. Nova Scotia Liberals want to get rid of daylight savings time. But experts believe politicians should sleep on it and leave things the way they've always been. Joe Thompson spoke with a sleep cycle expert about what the change would mean for Nova Scotians. Waking up is hard enough, let alone when your body doesn't know when to do it. Nova Scotia liberals say getting rid of time changes will be better for everyone's health. But an expert in body rhythms disagrees. Michael Antle is a psychologist at the University of Calgary. He says that permanent daylight savings time would create more problems than it solves. It's not that there's less daylight. I mean, the the daylight is still the same. Um, But what you've done is you've changed the relationship of our social clock that tells you when to get up and go to class, when to get up and go to work. He says adopting daylight savings time year-round would affect everyone. People are going to be going to be tired. Including children. Abigail Trumbull is a teacher at Rockingham Elementary School in Halifax. She says her students are off after the clocks go back. Like I had a class yesterday and I was just shocked at how they just, they weren't behaved as well and it just seemed that they were off, you know? The opposition bill is aimed at solving the issues presented by the time change by doing away with it altogether. But Antle says that's not the answer. Anytime people have tried this, they've realized that it was a bad idea and have always reversed it. So uh, Russia tried it in 2012. They went to permanent daylight savings time and they lasted two years. Um, The UK tried it in 1968 um, and they made it three years before uh, switching out of it. And the U.S. tried it in 1973 and didn't even survive the first winter before saying it was a bad idea. In some cases, groggy drivers killed children waiting for school buses. You're putting people behind the wheel an hour before their, their body clock wants them to. Uh, and so you have tired drivers uh, already dealing with darkness and, um, and slippery conditions. And it's just a, a recipe for disaster. Nova Scotia cannot get rid of the time change unless New Brunswick and PEI do it as well. For The Signal, I'm Joe Thompson. Maria Osende transitioned to online teaching when COVID-19 began. Her adult ballet class is now back in person. Throughout the pandemic, the group have become a community. Laura Jones paid them a visit. In a mirrored studio, women of different ages gather on Sunday nights to learn ballet. At the beginning of the pandemic, Maria Osende began an online class. For 18 months, she taught ballet every day. Many of the students who were part of that online group are now dancing in person in the Sunday class. This becomes like a family. Yeah, a lot of them were in this class today. And it became like a life savior. 
At a time when COVID-19 has caused many communities to disappear, this class is an opportunity that students appreciate. One of Osende's ballet students, Anne-Marie Mitchell, spoke of her experience in the in-person class. I love the way Maria teaches. She makes it fun and she also makes us work hard. For student Mandy Doucette, the online class was important during the pandemic. It was the first thing I did when I got up in the morning. And when you're not working and you get to do ballet in the morning, it was a saving grace. It was amazing. Maria Osende was a professional dancer in Europe for 10 years. When she moved to Canada in 2003, she began teaching dance. Now she teaches some classes in person and some over video to people as far away as Florida. I have the feeling that I'm doing something really good for these women. Osende says that dancing creates a connection. The friendships that develop in these classes are incredible. Like through the years, I've seen people get their best friends. And this connection is clear in the response she's received. The emails and the messages so emotional, you know, people are like, this is the best thing that happened to me during COVID, thank you so much, this is the only thing that kept me going, and like it gave structure to my day. Recently, the ballet class went on a retreat together. For Osende, it's been a positive part of the pandemic. You know, sometimes things happen and there's some silver lining in there, and I found that was just uh, really memorable. I mean, I'll never forget it. For The Signal, I'm Laura Jones. Halifax artist and TikTok star Max McCauley is helping strangers feel seen. He surprises them with sketches, and he has a personal reason for doing it. Marianne McClarty has more. I draw people in the city, so I was just drawing guys earlier. That was a snippet of one of Max McCauley's TikTok videos. The 23-year-old artist is also known as Slick.Skills. He draws portraits of strangers and records himself surprising them, then posts it to TikTok. He draws people on buses, in bars, cafes, and other places around Halifax. He says his motivation is to make people happy, and it all started with a man at the mall. And uh, he really appreciated it. I think uh, he took a picture, and then uh, I don't know, shook his hand, and I, I said thanks, he said thanks, and then I left. But I remember that reaction just being uplifting, so I was like, okay, if I have a reaction like that another time, then I'll definitely do it again. And he did. That's when he started posting his videos to TikTok. Then, everything changed. He now has almost 400,000 followers. This is his most popular video. It has 5.7 million views and 1.1 million likes. The video starts with Macaulay drawing a man sitting alone in a cafe, tapping his foot to music. Then, he gives the man and his wife the drawing. Excuse me. Sorry. I was, uh, I was drawing in the cafe. Oh my god, that is so cool! John Nowlin and Kelly Bruce were the couple featured in the video. They shared what that moment meant to them. Nowlin says the artist captured his spirit perfectly. It was humbling that somebody would even take the time to, to capture who I am. And uh, yeah, I, I, I carry that with me. It made our year, really. But Macaulay says not everyone reacts this way. One night he was drawing a woman at a bar. When he went to give her the drawing, she didn't want anything to do with it. She's like, fuck off. I was like, oh, okay. Um, sorry about that. She's like, yeah, like, what the f*** are you trying to do? However, out of the hundreds of people he's drawn, Macaulay says nine out of ten times people are grateful. While he says his goal is to spread kindness and positivity, 
It was his experiences with depression that led him to start sharing his work. I have an extremely, extremely bad memory, um, mainly because I have really bad depression. So if I look back at something or if I had a drawing or a little piece of writing or something, I could look back at it and pretty much remember the entire day. So I like that idea of giving other people that as well. He says he's happy with his success, but Macaulay's still not where he would like to be. He says mental and financial stability is all he really wants. But for now, he keeps himself busy drawing for strangers. For The Signal, I'm Marianne McClarty. You're listening to The Signal on CKDU 88.1 FM. I'm Marianne McClarty. And I'm Joe Thompson. You can also catch us on SoundCloud. Coming up on the show... we reached the stage where... It's going to be do or die. The race to save a historical landmark in southern Nova Scotia. And what Remembrance Day means for one infantry soldier. He'll share his thoughts about the 100th anniversary of the poppy. Also, a peek inside one man's Movember motivation, the memory of his grandfather. He kind of made me open my eyes to being a kind person to every person that you come across. That's later on The Signal. But first, a church with Acadian significance is in danger of demolition. L'Église Saint-Marie is a Catholic church in southeast Nova Scotia. The community of Church Point has banded together to save it. Josepha Cameron reports. In a small, windy Acadian town stands one of the tallest wooden churches in the world. But century-old Église Saint-Marie might be demolished unless the community of Church Point can save it first. They have less than a year to raise money to restore it. Andre Voltaire is from Church Point. He is also the church's custodian. When I was a child coming to Mass here, there was a Mass at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning and there was a Mass at 10 o'clock and both were full. Well, I used to come with my mother at, at the 10 o'clock Mass and she sang in the choir up here in the choir loft. And uh, I used to sit in the corner in the chair here. And I don't know how many times I dropped my prayer book down on the people that were sitting down below me here. Voltaire says nothing has replaced the church as a community hub. It represents what we like to call the ingenuity and perseverance of the Acadian people. You know, because to, to build something like this in 1903, when there was no electricity, no hydraulics, and basically just the sweat of your palms and your forehead, it, it just demonstrates how... The Acadians have a natural knack for building things. Eglise Saint-Marie now operates as a museum, but is falling apart. And fixing it will cost millions of dollars. The ceiling is leaking and shingles are coming off. It's getting to be hazardous to be around this building. The community pays the bills, but the Halifax Yarmouth Diocese still owns it. Araya Sadi speaks for the diocese. There is talk of... of putting this property in the hands of that community, but we need to know that that community is able to mm-hmm. take care of it as they wish to. Um, we don't want to burden them <laughs> with something that they're not able to to, uh, to take care of. She says the diocese wants to support the restoration of the church, but she won't say if the diocese will cover the repair costs. And she also won't say if they are going to tear down the building next fall. And only go so far because um, it does take resources, money, people, um, and time to 
keep these buildings running as they can. The Church Point community has an ally in Halifax. Julia McCaig is a junior architect at Heritage Trust of Nova Scotia. She scanned and measured the building for potential renovators. She wants Tourism Nova Scotia and the province to invest in the building. This is something that would actually bring people to that part of the province, and right now it's being kind of forgotten. McCaig says the diocese is acting out of fear. It would look bad if they handed it off irresponsibly, and it would look bad if they tore it down, and it would look bad if they didn't tear it down, and so they're just sitting on it and waiting for it to fall apart, which is really disrespectful. Pierre Camot heads the society that's trying to preserve the building. He is a retired civil engineer and lives in Church Point. We reached the stage where it's going to be do or die. The people of Church Point plan to keep meeting about the future of Iglesia St. Marie. If they don't raise enough money by next September, the doors could be closed forever. If the project goes ahead, great. Uh, if it doesn't, well, at least I can look myself in the mirror when I'm shaving. I can say, well, I tried. If this is a marathon, we're close to the finish line. Josefa Cameron, The Signal, Chibuktuk, Halifax. Every November since 2003, the Movember charity has grown on a global scale. Men shave at the beginning of the month and don't shave again until the end. It's their way of raising money and awareness for men's health issues, such as prostate and testicular cancer, as well as men's suicide. Dalhousie dentistry student Jared Lush has a special reason for participating for the first time. Aaron Murphy reports. The first seven days are any indication. My face will be comparable to like a 13, 14 year old boy's. But like, listen, there's a long month left, okay? We still got 23 days. Jared Lush is not confident in his Movember facial hair growing skills. On the other hand, he's optimistic about raising awareness for men's health. Not only is he staying away from his clippers, he's putting his body to the test. I'm running 60 kilometers this month for the fact that uh, every hour of every day, 60 men are lost to suicide. For men to take part in something for other men and advocate for men's health and mental health and physical health was all the motivation I really needed to take part. But in fact, Lush's Movember motivation is closer to his heart. This past April, I lost my grandfather to prostate cancer, which is obviously a, a male-specific disease, I guess you could say. For a lot of people, it's not something that you ne necessarily have to worry about being life-threatening, but unfortunately... In my grandfather's case, it was. Though his grandfather is gone, he motivates him to be a better person every day. He kind of made me open my eyes to being a kind person to every person you, that you come across. Lush's girlfriend, Sierra Jackson, says he inherited his grandfather's generosity. It was like a snowstorm. And we had just picked up, like, hot chicken and taters. And we were driving by, and there was, like a homeless person on the ground and Jared had pulled over. He's like, no, we got to give like our food to, you know, this person who's out in the snowstorm. Lush wishes his grandfather had more time, but has memories that will last forever. We went fishing for Father's Day a couple of years ago and when we got there, he, right away, he was, uh, would start to mention about stories that he had with his best friend talking about certain areas of the pond that they had fished and how successful their day had been 
years ago that they came out here and talking about how much different the land is and how much more it's grown in and I appreciated those moments like more than anybody could know yeah it was a <laughs> it's a great memory to have Lush hopes others can find reasons of their own to take part in any charity he's chosen Movember and says his grandfather would be proud. Aaron Murphy, The Signal, Halifax. Now to two stories about two men, marking Remembrance Day in different ways. First, a man who teaches veterans to serve from cyberspace rather than the battlefield. He's doing it from a van that he's driving across the country. Jeff Musson runs a group called Coding for Veterans. Jeff, thanks for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity, Joe. What made you found this initiative? I come from the tech sector, and uh, so I'm acutely aware of the um, uh, big issue that we're having as, a re as it relates to talent in the tech sector. Um, studies have shown over the next 12 to 18 months, there's going to be about 147,000 IT jobs that are projected to go unfilled. And when you actually look at the soft skills that, you know, the best individuals in the tech sector have things like leadership, teamwork, attention to detail, they actually mirror the soft skills of individuals coming out of the military. And so that was really in a, a way, you know, to not only help those in Canada's military get good jobs and build a, a sustaining career after they leave, but also to help start to backfill and, and you know, these, these job openings in Canada's tech sector. Can you just elaborate a bit more on how people with military experience are able to transition to the IT sector? Yeah, so um, our program itself really has two streams. You have software development and you have cybersecurity. And it's delivered 100% online through the University of Ottawa. And if someone wants to do it full-time, uh, it takes them about six to eight months. If they do the program part-time, you're looking about 12 to 14, 16 months and what's interesting with this program is that, especially in the cybersecurity area, you know, we like to say individuals from the military go from serving on the battlefield to now serving in cyberspace. So you still have that, you know, duty of service that really drew people to the military. The only difference is now it's really um, shifted uh, into the digital world. And so this year, the program expanded to include Afghan interpreters. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I'm sure your your listeners are acutely aware of the situation that unfolded over the, in the summertime over in Afghanistan. And we have a number of Afghan military veterans in our program, and it was really kind of tearing them apart to see, you know, how these interpreters were really left behind. And the real big issue was Canada could not have fulfilled its mission over there without the help of these interpreters. They were essential for communicating with people in the villages and things such as that. And so as a group, we could not obviously go over there to immigrate people, but we sure could help those Afghan interpreters establish themselves and build a career when they got to Canada. So we went and approached our um, corporate partners and raised scholarship money. So tuition for interpreters that want to enter our program, they can do it and it's free of charge. That's excellent. Can you tell me a little bit about anything that um, 
you've learned or gathered um, during your experience with coding for veterans as far as it relates to, you know, veterans and their relationship with our country? Yeah. So what's interesting is, is every veteran that I've come across has a tremendous sense of duty to Canada that I wish the general population would, would sometimes embrace, right? And they put themselves, you know, uh, I say we before me is my saying, right? And, you know, that sort of collectiveness of the greater good, you know, is one thing that really has been a focal point within each sort of uh, veteran. And, and what's been great is that our program allows military veterans to provide financial stability and job security uh, for not only themselves, but their family once they release. Like average salaries coming out of our program uh, that people get hired are, you know, $85,000, $90,000, which is more money than they made in the military. And so what better way to say thanks for your service than to provide them an opportunity in really a a condensed window. We call it micro-credentialing, but really, you know, when the program's delivered 100% online through the University of Ottawa, who's our academic partner, you know, within a year of, of releasing, you know, these men and women can be, you know, now in the civilian occupation, really embarking on their next career and their next chapter. Well, thank you again. Uh, Jeff Musson is the Executive Director with Coding for Veterans. He's taken his caravan across the country for the past month. Jeff, thanks again for your time. Have a great one. Thanks, Joe. It's the 100th anniversary of the poppy. A century ago, Canada was the first country to sport the pin, a tradition that has continued across the world. Here's infantry soldier Louis Brightup on what Remembrance Day means to him this year. As an infantry soldier, Remembrance Day means a lot of things to us. To begin with, like, the reason it started in the first place is because our friends, our brothers, our forefathers, like, all all sorts of people have gone overseas and fought for something that we all communally believe in as a society. They fought for us to be here having this conversation today. They fought for our kids going to school, the kids out in the field playing ball, all that good stuff. Like that's what the poppy kind of symbolizes to me. It's just the, we remember why we can do all the things we can today because of the sacrifice that the people have made way before us. And this year's the poppy's 100th anniversary. What do you believe is the current significance of the poppy? It's been a hundred good years as far as I'm concerned. That's really all I have to say. Do you think there will be another hundred years of the poppy? I should hope so. If there's not, I'd like to know about it so we can start to worry about how we can make that happen. Why would that be worrisome? I could talk for days about this, but long story short with modern like warfare and the way things are going and technology and all that, like, the next world war per se could happen legitimately anywhere on the planet. And I'm not going to delve into it because anyone who does their research probably knows a lot more about this than I do, but uh, it could get ugly very quickly and it could get ugly here if we're not careful. So that's why I'm concerned about that. And why is it important to take a moment to remember? It's important to take a moment to remember, to just simply appreciate being here sometimes, to appreciate the people who aren't around you anymore and, appreciate the sacrifices that were made because you make sacrifices every day in your life you make decisions you make trade-offs right and someone's day job was going overseas and again fighting for what something we all believe in and for people who um aren't who don't have connections like you do how can they pay their respects in a meaningful way 
you can purchase a poppy out of the donations box and if at any point really you don't have to do this with a form body it could be just yourself but you can wander over to a cenotaph where the wreaths have been laid and you can lay down your poppy and say a few silent words a few silent thoughts say your thanks say in the prayer however you'd like to say thank you how how will you be remembering this year i'll be wearing a poppy on my outfit for the entirety of this month well until remembrance day that is and then i'm not going to go as a form body i myself am going to go as an individual to a cenotaph and just stand there and think probably one night and just meditate on that per se that's how i'm going to go about it and think about how we can keep the poppy around for another hundred years in the future and if i how i want to be a part of that essentially what will remembrance day look for you as an infantry soldier as an infantry soldier, it's going to involve me getting in uniform with a bunch of the guys I work alongside with. We're all going to be wearing the poppy and we're all going to march down to the cenotaph, probably fire off 21 shots in remembrance and honor and whatnot. And then we're probably going to get some beers afterwards because Remembrance Day, as much as it is about remembering, it's about being thankful and knowing the army culture in full honesty. Those guys would want us to drink and not be sorry that they sacrifice themselves right they would like if they were with us they would probably hand us a beer and say hey have a good time with us and now that they're not here we're going to continue having a good time in their memory in their place if that makes sense that's what we do great well thanks louis thanks for joining us and thanks for taking the time to talk to us um, yeah my pleasure yeah, thank you for thank having you. me that was infantry soldier louis Brightup talking about what it means to remember this year on the 100th anniversary of the poppy and that's it for this week's episode of the signal from Audio Workshop at the University of King's College. I'm Joe Thompson. And I'm Marianne McClarty. A special thanks to Technical Director Mark Pinio. Our producer today was Isabel Buckmaster. Laura Jones was the Associate Producer. Josefa Cameron was the Social Media Producer and the Editor. Teaser Producer was Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening.